12, to the very last verse in Acts chapter 12, and we'll continue reading through Acts 13, verse 3. For those of you who are visiting, we are working our way through the book of Acts. Please hear God's word, beginning with verse 25 of Acts chapter 12. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we have read your word, I pray now as it is proclaimed that uh, you would help us to have a fervency for the gospel and a uh, fervency in seeking your face that we see here witnessed by the early church. Father, I ask that you would give me your help as I proclaim Christ. I pray you would give your people's uh, help as they hear it and by faith uh, receive it and obey it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. While I was ministering at my last church in South Carolina, and I was the associate pastor uh, there, um, a question came up for discussion on our, uh, amongst our elders, our session. And the question just would not go away. It was one that we just continually talked about. And the question was, does, a, does aggressive evangelism still work? The church had the normal outreach ministries that uh, most churches have. Uh, We were leaders in giving volunteers to the local um, Young Life Ministry, also the Pregnancy Care Center. We also had a very strong Vacation Bible School program. And we had a booth in town, uh, I'm sorry, we had a a booth at the town's local uh, arts and crafts uh, festival uh, called Aiken's Making. I would spend the entire weekend out there manning that booth and um, we would do arts and crafts with the the children and uh, share Christ where we were able and hand out literature and stuff like that and we had people come to our church uh, as a result of these efforts but the problem was as we were noticing that uh, we were not seeing many if any Uh, people being converted from unbelief to faith in Christ through all these outreach programs. We were basically, the the decks of the various churches were being shuffled, was our sense of what was happening. And uh, we felt like we needed to be seeing people coming to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of the ministry of our church. We were seeing people come to faith in in Christ, but it was um, 
our children. We had a, a lot of children in the church. In fact, it was quite scary to see the mob of children running down the halls after Sunday school. And uh, it, we called it our fishing pool, because, and, it, and it was well stocked. And those children, because of the, the promises of God... Um, he was bringing these children to faith in Jesus Christ as the gospel was week in and week out presented to these children as the, the gospel was pre- being presented by the families day in and day out to these children. But we weren't seeing uh, adults come from unbelief to faith in Jesus and I think it, it, well, it rightly had us concerned. Interestingly enough, uh, I was talking to Mike Phillips, who was a senior pastor back in, at New Covenant in Aiken. We were talking yesterday on the phone. And in the course of conversation, he asked me if I remembered, a name of, remembered this couple. He named the couple. I told him I'd never even heard of them before. And he told me that uh, they speak highly of me. And I was like, well... How is that? He said, well, some years ago, they met me at Aiken's Macon while I'm out there in the hot sun uh, going through the ministry uh, along with some of the ladies from our church doing these arts and crafts. Uh, They lived up in Michigan. And we talked about the gospel. I gave them some literature from the church. And now they were moving down to, to from Michigan. And they wanted to know where they should live. And they said, we enjoyed uh, meeting that minister in Aiken. And we, so they moved to Aiken and are now at uh, New Covenant and very involved. And he was... And I don't even know who they were. So I say that to say God is at work even when we're not aware of it. I found it uh, personally very encouraging to hear that. But anyway, back to the issue at hand. The session, uh, after wrestling with this question, why aren't we seeing people come to Christ? Are we not being aggressive enough uh, in evangelism? Should we be aggressive in evangelism? They finally came uh, to to try and answer this question in a unique way. Uh, they hired two interns for the summer and turned those interns over to me. And uh, our task was to put to test, um, does aggressive evangelism work? And so uh, we went out and did evangelism every day. And we kept good records of who we talked to. We kept good records of their response. We then followed up with them and kept records of what happened to them. Um, And uh, so, in fact, I I went and pulled those records out of my files, a copy of those records, and reviewed them last week uh, to see the results of our evangelism. We led 17 people to Christ, or rather to make professions of faith in Christ, uh, during the two months that I had these uh, men under my care doing evangelism. Some of those two people that we led to Christ started coming to our church. Others continued uh, going to church, but at a, another church. Um, some churches, uh, some people started going back to a church that they had previously attended or grown up in now that they had come to faith in Christ, uh, while others uh, did not go to church anywhere that we could find and we, we lost touch with them. 
Um, I led a man to Christ who then introduced me to his living girlfriend uh, and her two sons. And uh, I led him to Christ. I led her to Christ. A couple of weeks later, I got to marry them and uh, still keep in touch with them. And uh, they are doing well and continuing to walk faithfully with Christ. None of those 17 that we led to Christ during that summer ended up staying at New Covenant. Uh, New Covenant uh, Presbyterian up in Aiken, South Carolina. If you know about Aiken, that's where the bomb plant is located, Savannah River site where they made the nuclear weapons. And so our church was full of... um, Nuclear engineers and um, and uh, nuclear scientists, and it made for a fascinating but also unusual group of people to have um, what 330, 350 uh, engineers or either someone married to an engineer running around and congregating in the same place. Um, and it really did not surprise me that none of those whom we led to Christ ended up uh, staying in our church. Uh, we did our evangelism uh, more amongst uh, a more blue-collar um, um, group of people while our church was very white-collar and professional. And uh, so I can understand uh, how they didn't feel as comfortable. They were made to feel very welcome, but never felt comfortable. I say all this to say, evangelism still works. But here's what was, um, I think, rather unique about the method that uh, I used with these two interns. We prayed. You say, that's not unique. Well, in practice, unfortunately, it is a unique practice. We go out and do stuff, and and we, we pray about it in a cursory fashion. And then we wonder why why we're not more effective at what we do. Uh, with these two young men, we prayed uh, three days a week in my home at 5.30 in the morning. We would pray for an hour at a time. Uh, Doug, um, who is the grandson of one of the founders of our denomination, uh, he would pray laying sprawled out on the floor with his face in the, in the, in the carpet and just laying prostrate on the floor. And as he would pray, when he would recount in his prayers the the promises of God or God's faithfulness, he would kind of laugh to himself. But then as he would get fervent, he would start pounding the floor, just punctuating every every request and every prayer. And uh, the the homes in South Carolina are built over uh, a crawl space, unlike a lot of the homes here that are built on a concrete slab. And so the whole house would, would shake. And I would say, Doug, my wife and kids are, are asleep. You're going to wake them up. And that didn't slow him down. And the other young man, uh, Cole, when he would pray, he would pray with his, on his knees but not leaning up against anything. He would pray with his, on his knees with his hands stretched up, with his head uh, facing up. And because of that posture, and God says, I want all men everywhere to pray with hands lifted up. And so that's, that was his posture. And because of that posture, he would pray loudly. And I would say, Cole, lower your voice. But 
he he rarely uh, lowered his voice very much, um, and so that was that was uh, our prayer meeting um, in the morning. Like I said, we would pray for an hour. If you're wondering, I didn't pray like either one of them in terms of posture. Uh, I played basketball for years. My knees hurt, so I put pillows on the floor and then leaned on the couch uh, with my head bowed on the couch to kind of help hold me up. But uh, we would pray, and we would pray, God, give us fruit. And then we would gather every uh, every day. That, that was three days a week. And then we would gather every day at noon, and we would go into a Sunday school room, and we would pray some more. We'd pray for another hour, and we would invite people from the church to join us in prayer. Um, that was always sparsely attended. However... Um, Faithful Edie Bukish uh, would join us. Uh, she was a widow in our church, and just what a prayer warrior. Um, then we would go out and we would spend the afternoons going door to door or just going wherever we could meet people and sharing the gospel and being pretty aggressive uh, doing so. It was prayer that made the difference. And when we uh, went a week without leading anyone to Christ, we decided, well, what we need to do is we need to fast. And so we fasted for two days. And uh, then we led someone else to Christ. I relate this extended story to say that just because evangelism is hard, just because it doesn't seem as effective in our culture, it is still the task of the church. I read several sermons on this passage in preparation for this sermon, and each sermon, interestingly enough, started out the same way, reminding us that the main business of the church is evangelism and missions. Stephen Cole, I don't even know who he is, but I found him on the internet, and in his sermon on this passage he says, What is the main business of the church? Some would say it is the care of its members. The church is here to visit the sick and pray with them to take care of people at important transitions in life such as marriage, childbirth, and death. It's here to provide guidance and comfort for people at important times. No doubt these are all functions of the church. But I would argue that these functions are not the main business of the church. And if we start acting as if they were, we will miss our main business. We are always in danger of slipping into a maintenance mentality in the church where we focus on maintaining our religious club and preserving its sacred traditions and we forget about the lost. Erwin McManus, a preacher out in California, uh, said somehow we think that the church is here for us. We forget that we are the church and we are here for the world. John Piper, I'm sure many of you know of him uh, in Minnesota, He says the book of Acts is a constant indictment of mere maintenance Christianity. It is a constant goad and encouragement and stimulation to fan the flame of Christ's work, uh, which is the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Gospels end with the Great Commission. The book of Acts begins with the Great Commission. You shall be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the other and the utter ends of the earth. That is our commission. 
That is our calling. We are to bring glory and honor to God's name by proclaiming Jesus Christ to a lost world. How are we doing at being faithful to this task? Could we improve? Must we improve? Of course we must. So how do we know what we must do? How do we know what's the best strategy for proclaiming Christ? Well, let's look at the early church. Uh, Look at uh, verses 25, uh, or chapter 12, verse 25 through chapter 13, verse 2. And Barnabas and Saul uh, returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The preparation for the task of doing evangelism begins in worship and in prayer. That's where they found out what, what their marching orders were. Just to give you a little background, the scene has shifted in chapter 12 from Jerusalem then to Caesarea. Remember last week how uh, we saw that Herod Antipas had died there in Caesarea. And now it's shifted again. Uh, in verse 25 and in chapter 13 to the city of Antioch. Remember that Barnabas and Saul, who is of course Paul, had been uh, preaching and teaching in the church for the past year. And then they got word from some prophets that had come from Jerusalem that a great famine was about to seize the world. So then the church sent Barnabas and Saul uh, with food and money down to Jerusalem. And they went to help care for the needs of the church there during the the upcoming famine. And then upon their return uh, back to Antioch, they joined with the other leaders of the church in Antioch. And they began worshiping God. And they began praying earnestly. And they began fasting. They seemed to have a sense that they were supposed to be doing something else besides teaching and shepherding the church there in Antioch. And so they gathered together as the leaders and they sought the Lord earnestly until they could figure out what they were to be doing. This is very important. Think about the church in Antioch. They undoubtedly had many needs. Remember how the people, the Christians in Antioch had fled Jerusalem because of the persecution. They had left all their possessions behind in Jerusalem. And so there were many needs. I'm sure there were many Christians who were just impoverished. Not only that, they had added many new Christians in Antioch. And these new Christians were from all over the world. They, they were of different races. They were of different cultures. Probably even different languages. Look with me at verse 1. Just to, to look at a sampling of the, the uh, diversity of this church. You see here amongst the leadership. So now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, who was Jewish, 
And then Simeon, whose name was Niger. And as you read the commentaries, the commentaries say that the word Niger um, meant that he was a black man. And not only that, there was Lucius of Cyrene. Where is Cyrene? Does anybody know where the, the island of Cyrene is located? It's located just off the coast, not even half a mile away from the north shore of Libya, since they're in the news. And so here is a Libyan, even though I don't think they had Libyans back then, technically. And he's a member of the church. And then uh, Menaean, he's a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. Here is a part of the ruling class that is a leader uh, here as well as the impoverished folks of the church. So there's a wide diversity of, of people uh, here if these leaders are representative of the membership of the church. And um, you can imagine how with the needs of, of poverty, the needs of, or the, 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 the hardship of having different cultures, different races, different languages, how that could just consume the church and the church would be tempted to turn in on itself and, and try and meet all the various challenges that they are having. But instead of turning in on themselves... They are seeking God, and they're saying, God, we know we have all these needs, but what do you want us to do? They didn't want to get so caught up in their own things that they forgot what God was calling them to do. So they entered into this extended and... um, and fervent time of, of prayer and of fasting. And what did God do? Well, He answered again in verse 2. The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. In other words, what the Holy Spirit is saying, Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to send your two best pastors out of the church and out into world missions. This must have been a struggle for the church. You know, to, to lose the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and send them out. It must have been tempting for them to say, we need to keep these gifted men here among us. No wonder, in verse 3, that after God said that to them, that they didn't just obey immediately. But rather what they did was they went back to prayer and fasting. But then, of course, they were obedient. They laid hands on them and then sent them out to do what God had called them to do. I've personally experienced, I know I've shared this on at least one occasion, maybe more, but I have personally experienced that the best decisions, uh, the most life-changing decisions that I have made, have come either right in the middle of prayer or as a direct result of prayer. I made the decision to go to Covenant College on a day in which I was fasting and praying. I called my parents and I said, I want to go to Covenant College. It's expensive. Here's how much it costs. And my parents' response was not, well, we need to see and need to figure out if we can afford this. They said, 
if God's calling you to go there, we want you to go there. And they sent me to Covenant College. It was that simple. Uh, I made the decision to pursue Mandy after praying. And I thought I was going to have to continue praying because she was not as agreeable to me pursuing her as I wanted her to be. But I prayed and she consented and she is my wife. Uh, I made the decision to confront a brother in Christ uh, while in prayer, and this was no small decision. I've told you, some of you in private, about that episode in my life. He could have destroyed my ministry. But yet, I knew that I had to say something to this man, and I was fully ready for my ministry to be destroyed, and I said something. And uh, he didn't repent. He made life hard. And God took care of me through it. Um, I, don't, I would not have, I don't know, I, I would not have been able to make that decision had it not been uh, while I was praying and had a real deep sense that God was, was, um, was leading me in that. I made the decision to leave New Covenant and come to Brandon after much prayer. I believe that we overlook the necessity of extended, fervent, wholehearted prayer when it comes to seeking the will of God. But this was not the case with the early church. The early church moved only in the context of prayer. Can we do any less? Should we? Certainly not. We must do. We, we must bathe our decisions, our ministry in prayer. If the early church felt the need to do this when they had Paul and Barnabas as their ministers, how much more should we? And let me say this. I've never been in a church where the leadership joined together in prayer and fasting over an extended period of time. In fact, I... I've rarely even heard of churches where the leadership do this sort of thing. Nor have I heard a church, um, or never have I been a part of a church where the leadership called the congregation to prayer and fasting. Is it any wonder that evangelism is so difficult and so effective that we like we were doing at New Covenant up in Aiken, South Carolina, we're wondering whether we should be doing it. Lastly, the instruments for the task of evangelism and missions is people. Verse 3, Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. I've heard some missions uh, or some uh, uh, missionary advocates say that uh, everybody is called to be a missionary. It's just a matter of whether you choose to be obedient or disobedient. In many ways, I agree with that sentiment. Um, missions should weigh heavily on, on the heart of every Christian. It should weigh heavily on our hearts because that is, that is the business of God. Jesus Christ came here to earth to seek and to save the lost. He made it the, min, the main business of the church. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, Jesus told the church. Does it weigh on your heart? 
that people are dying here in Brandon and around the world without Jesus Christ and are having to face the judgment of God without the righteousness of Christ with their sins still being held against them? John Piper says, There are only three possibilities in life as a Christian. To be a goer, to be a sender, or to be disobedient. He's right. But all that being said, let me make this qualification. Not every Christian is called to live or leave his or her uh, country and go take the gospel to people in other cultures. That takes a special calling from God and it requires special gifts that not all believers have. Here in our passage, not all the church in Antioch was told to leave. Only Barnabas and Paul were told to leave. And God sent them. And then the church then agreed. And that's what the laying on of hands is all about. Is the church is sanctioning, saying, yes, we agree that these men are to go out. Uh, and they are being sent by God. They've been called by God. Um, I believe a man should not go into the pastoral ministry unless he senses an urge, uh, 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 has a sense of God's call, and then the church agrees with that calling. And that's what's happening here in verse 3. The church is putting their seal of approval on Barnabas and Saul as they send them out to be missionaries. But they didn't send them out and forget about them. The church must join with the missionaries that God sends out. We must support their work. We have a pretty strong missions program here. We could we could continue to build it up. Here's one of the main applications I want to give you today. One of the tasks I want to give you. On this back wall out in the narthex, um, out here, you have our missionaries that we support. There's some newsletters, there's some information about them. If you don't know who our missionaries are, pick up some of that information. Also, on our website, we have the missionaries that we support with information about them and, and pictures of them. Go on the website and, and learn about our missionaries so that you can support them in prayer. Maybe choose one of those missionaries and begin writing to them and, and developing a relationship with them. Pray about uh, giving money directly to them. Uh, when I was uh, in Gulf Coast Presbytery up on the, the panhandle, uh, I was on the missions committee for the Presbytery. And one of the tasks that uh, I was given was to call the churches in the Presbytery and find out how their missions programs were and how much they were giving to missions. I was shocked to find that about uh, a quarter of the churches gave nothing to missions at all. Even one of the, the richest churches in our presbytery could, could not find any money to give to missions whatsoever. You know, we give generously. We've cut back in our giving because of the, the budgetary uh, constraint. But now God has been faithful. And frankly, you have been uh, very faithful in giving. And the budget is going up. And so the missionaries are receiving more and I'm thankful to that, to God for that. Uh, but we need to continue to put them at the front of our priorities and put our put evangelism and prayer for evangelism 
at the front of our uh, priorities. Do you pray for our missionaries? Do you pray for our outreach? Do you pray that God would use you to lead someone to Jesus Christ? That's where it's begin. Let's pray together. Almighty God, as uh, we have opened Your Word and we have seen the early church gather together in worship and in fervent prayer and even in fasting, God, I pray that You would help us to prioritize that same type of prayer because we know that Your priority is bringing glory and honor to Your name by leading people to Jesus Christ. Father, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.